in the last two minutes, my idea about this evening's talk changed. <laughs> and partly it came from just looking around the room and noticing that, um, just remembering when I used to go to a to meditation retreats and and there was a person sitting in front and I had uh, many many ideas about who that person was and, and lots of ideal what we call in psychology idealized transference and but it turned out that there were certain people who I sat with who, by virtue of whatever was happening with me and whoever they were, there was some kind of alchemy. And because of that relationship, there was something in what they said or did or taught that changed my, my mind. That, turned my mind more toward uh, awakening, toward the Dharma. And I don't know how many of you know this, but in the Hindu world, today is Guru Purnima. And there are equivalent things throughout the world in different traditions, but Guru Purnima is really Guru uh, Appreciation Day. <laughs> Guru Gratitude where one honors their teachers, their masters. In fact, one tradition calls it Master's Day. But it really is the, the, the reminder of what a guru is. A guru is that being, in this case, on the surface, that being who points points the so-called student back to themselves. The guru, hopefully, to some degree, embodies, has some experience with what the, what the student wants, what the student longs for, what the student needs. But the, a true guru is somebody that says, don't just follow me. It's not about me. A guru is constantly pointing back to the person who's listening and say, the true guru is your own nature. Don't go out of yourself and search for that. So when you're honoring the, the guru, you're honoring the one that reminds you not to go out of yourself. The one who reminds you to stay where you are and wake up. One of my teachers, a teacher, uh, an Indian guru named H.W.L. Punja, made a very clear distinction between teachers or gurus, teachers and preachers. Preachers tell you all about the teachings. 
tell you all about whatever they, whatever they have to teach. A preacher will teach you how to postpone, how to, how to wait, how to, to, to hope for the promised land, to hope for freedom, hope for peace in the world. But um, will in some ways keep you enslaved in an endless search in an endless practice of giving yourself over to another or endlessly believing that you have to jump through certain hoops that may someday at some point give you what you are looking for. So that's a, a preacher. A teacher says, look, right where you are. Because what you're looking for is the very nature of your own mind. The very consciousness through which you're perceiving. And all the, the, the deepest freedom, the liberation, Nibbana, whatever it is, is, is your own. Is your natural state. And don't stray away from yourself. So the teacher will say, practice, practice, practice. But they won't tell you to go anywhere. And they won't tell you to wait. And they won't tell you that only, those, only the special ones can wake up. So there are teachers and there are preachers in this world. I've had the great good fortune of being with a lot of teachers. So on Guru Purnima Day for me, I sit here, I realize I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for my teachers. The teacher, H.W.L. Punja, he's one of them. I know I've told this story many times here, but I happened to meet him at a time where I was absolutely on fire with wanting to know the truth, wanting to wake up wanting to find whatever it was that, that, allows, that, that could allow me to be free of this gnawing sense of, of existential angst that could, that could free me from the fear that, and self-judgment that would torment me. And I had done a lot of practice been on four, five, three-month silent meditation retreats. And so at this point where I met this teacher, I wanted nothing else. But I had, had a lot of understanding, but there was still this kind of gnawing sense of, of feeling bound in some way. And I went to see him, and this is just this mountain of a, a, a man with that one moment would be just laughing and infectious laughing and you began to catch whatever the state was that he was experiencing. The next moment he'd be weeping, the sweetest, most tender heart, heartbreaking with, in a simple interaction. But I went to see him and he, sa and he said to me, 
Why have you come here to see me? Because I had just traveled all the way across the world to see him. I had heard about this teacher. And I said, and uh, I had one of my friends and colleagues had been to see him. And when she came home from seeing him, she came off the airplane and I picked her up and she was radiating a kind of light, a kind of joy. And I took one look at her and I felt this spontaneous impulse to prostrate. I'm not so much the prostrating type. But I felt this strong impulse and I got, for the next several days, I, I became kind of manic, crazy. And I said, I have to go see this teacher. So this was kind of the culmination of a lot of practice and a lot of searching. And so I finally make my way there. My first conversation with him, he said, why did you come here? <laughs> and at this point in my practice, I knew that what I was looking for was, was right here. I knew it. I knew that it, that the, and you've probably heard this expression before, God, guru, and self are one. That's one of them. Same thing. Everything. Right here. And you've probably also heard the line, the seeker and the sought are one. So this is kind of floating through my mind. I said, okay, I came, I'm, I came here because I know that the seeker and the sought are one. So these ideas, they're beautiful. For a moment, they give you a little hit. I said, I know that the seeker and the sought are one, but I've come halfway around the world to see you, so I must want something from you. And he looked at me with this big, joyous grin on his face, but then also looked at me with a kind of intensity. And he said, remove the seeker and remove the sought. And when I heard him say those words, I went completely unconscious. And the next thing, what brought me back into consciousness was this deep, guttural laugh. I heard a laugh. And as I drifted into consciousness, I realized the laugh was coming out of my own mouth. And so that came into consciousness of laughing. And then in the very next instant, every, all, all the, it was as though I had a, one, like a matrix experience. Everything just dissolved. And my mind went kind of quiet. And it, it, I couldn't, I almost could not utter a, a thought for the next month. Just was, so it was something about meeting this teacher who showed me that there was a subtle clinging to the idea of a seeker and the idea of something being sought. And when that identity dropped for a moment, when he said, remove the seeker, remove the sight, all that was left was this radiance, this silence, 
that was completely free from the very beginning. So I have this unbelievable gratitude for this pointing out, this teacher who just threw it literally, what was it, five, six words, ended this search, ended the seeker, ended thinking there was something to be sought that existed in time. It was anything other than the very nature of my own mind. So lots of gratitude about that. So then sitting here with you, I reflected on sitting with my root Vipassana teacher. It's amazing how much can happen in 30 seconds of reflection. My root Vipassana teacher, Joseph Goldstein. This precedes H.W.L. Punja, but another kind of radiant character, very clear, very silent, very what we would call empty, just a kind of empty presence that had a kind of um, shimmering quality, Joseph. I don't know if this language makes any sense to you, but really this beautiful quality about Joseph. And I was struggling through my first meditation retreats with him, body hurt, tremendous resistance, tremendous self-judgment, all kinds of things coming up. And Joseph, just in the course of giving a, a Dharma talk, he gave a talk on the Four Noble Truths, the basically essential Dharma. And it, when he gave this teaching on the Four Noble Truths, he just, without any kind of hesitancy, without any apology, without any hand-holding, he said, this life has within it dukkha. Dukkha is a word for unsatisfactoriness, that which is difficult to bear, stress, suffering. And he elaborated on the kinds of suffering that show up in if you're born. I always say that you know definition of birth is the leading cause of stress and all kinds of stress of being born, stress of aging, stress of illness, stress of dying, stress of, of not getting what you want, frustrated desire, the stress of how vulnerable our pride is, how easily shaken, so many kinds of stresses, the stress of injustice, the stress of, of inequality, the stress, just enormous kinds of stress. This is what comes. And he just put it out there. And I, of course, have been raised in a world where everything was a little bit sugar-coated, where you didn't want to talk about the truth, wanted to keep the illusion going that, that it can all be kind of beautiful. And if, you, if it's not beautiful, there's something wrong with you. And that you just don't have what you need yet. You just have to do a little more shopping. 
You have to have a, many more experiences. You have to get enlightened. Even that. A subtle sense of some kind of carrot. But it turned out that when he said it in that unqualified way, it pierced my heart. And I started to weep. And it was a weeping of joy. The joy of somebody finally saying what, what we all know, but somehow either ignore or, or we're being told that you can be happy if you, if you are a success, you get what you want, you get rid of what you don't want, you get the right person, you get the right home, you get the right job, you get the, the endless stream of, of inexhaustible hunger that our world feeds. Saying, listen, no matter what you have in this world, no matter how good you have it, no matter how good a day you're having, it always has a measure or a mark of dukkha. This is reality and open to it. I was overjoyed, somebody said, and it inspired me. And then it made, it made me want to listen to what he had to say more. And then there was something about listening to him. And I highly recommend all of you to listen to some talks from Joseph Goldstein. Listen to his words. He has talks on, he has 49 talks on the, on the sutras, on the four foundations of mindfulness. 49 talks on the Satipatthana Sutra, that's the four foundation. But what's even more interesting than the information that he shares, because the Dharma is beautiful and invites us to look more deeply at our experience moment to moment. But what's more beautiful than the words that he uses What's more beautiful is the space between the words. There is a space between his words, a silence behind his words that imbue them with a kind of power that help us, that at least help me to attune to that inner silence. So he, he taught me that, that well, he, he taught me in a different way. One, one of my so-called friends once said, when they thought that I talked too much, filled the space too much, said, people who can't live in the quietness of their hearts live in their lips. That was a gift, actually. So that was her way of teaching about the silence. His way was just to, to sit comfortably in silence and speak from silence. From that kind of empty presence, letting the words just float out and out of emptiness back into emptiness. And so if you, if you happen to listen to Joseph's talks, see if you can connect with the silence between the words. It had a very profound impact on my heart. So I could go on guru after guru. I've had so many of them. 
one of them I, I, I was angry at 90% of the time. His name was H.W.L. His name was uh, uh, Sayada Upandita, a Burmese master. And he was, he, uh, this is the last person I'll talk about. He was considered a master of concentration practice and also a, a master of insight meditation. But he had a very conservative style. And his style was, which I, I really took to very intensely, his style of practice was to develop the power of, of concentration and insight through careful noticing and noting of each arising moment. And that is central in the, in the teachings anyway, to, note, to have continuous mindfulness of each arising experience. So whatever's happening, if you're breathing in, you know you're breathing in, breathing out, you know you're breathing out, you know when, that your mind wanders, you notice that, you notice when it comes back to the primary anchor, you notice if a sound arises, you notice if a smell arises, you notice if a sensation arises, you know if it's unpleasant or pleasant, you know not just that something has occurred, you know what happens to that something that you're noticing. So the precision of noticing changing conditions moment by moment, this is a kind of mind training, allows you to see more precisely than you've ever seen what's actually happening in any moment. So if I ask you what's happening in this moment while we're sitting together tonight, most of the time we'll say, well, I'm feeling a little tired from work or a little sad about what's going on in the world or I'm, I'm hungry or thirsty or I'm bored or, you know, it will usually stop, give a general description of our, of our general situation or location, just generally. But the way, that, the way that he would invite you to practice is you would notice much more momentary. So much momentary that you would notice that the entirety of your experience is made up of basically six things repeating themselves. You're either seeing, you're hearing, you're smelling, you're tasting, you're sensing something in your body, or you're thinking or feeling, and you're knowing it. Just six experiences unfolding, repeating over and over. And if you do that long enough, which I did with him, and I had been doing that kind of practice in general for many years, but with him I did it in a much more precise way. It became crystal clear how much of the time I wasn't actually experiencing reality. I was experiencing reality through the lens of my narrative about it. I was embellishing every experience with some kind of meaning or significance and missing just the suchness, the simplicity of what was happening. So shining a light on the difference between my mental elaborations and the, and the simplicity of what's happening was so illuminating because we're used to really spinning up, we're mostly living in our story. 
And when you step out of your story and you experience life more directly, I would say 95% of your suffering vanishes. There's just what there is. <coughs> Oh, the question was, why did he make me so angry? Because not only did he, was he a master at training meditators to see in this very precise way, but he was also very devoted to breaking down any, uh, any pride that his meditators experienced. And he used methods that one of my Italian teacher friends called Stone Age Psychology. <laughs> His Stone Age Psychology was to first, when you'd come to approach him for interviews, he would tell you how wonderful you were, which he did be. Oh, yogi, and he would smile. And then after warming me up a little bit, the next time I would come in to meet with him, he would ignore me, pick up a book and start reading, or every single word that I reported, because the, the style of practice with him was that you would report what's happening moment by moment. And that you had to actually write it down after your sittings and get really precise at what happened, what happened to when you noticed it, what happened, did you note it, and what happened to it when you noticed it. And so every time I would start to report, he would just almost shoo me away. And I got so furious that I, that I wanted to, I, I literally wanted to, to punch him. And I would plan my revenge in interviews in between. And in fact, Joseph Goldstein, who I just spoke of, at one of the practice periods that I had with Upandita, he sat in on my interviews. He and Sharon Salzberg sat in my interviews as I was reporting, and they were certain that I was going to jump on them. <laughs> so, but I, am, I feel so grateful because from that experience of sitting with him, I can, I can smell an elaboration a mile away. I can tell when somebody's telling me what what's actually going on or what their story is about it. And I, I so value people's story, and I know, so value the importance of being able to tell one's story. And it's a way, it's a medium of connection. But in terms of tasting reality and the liberation of the heart, you have to see the difference between the, the suchness of things, the experience of things in the story. It's that line that I repeat very many times on Tuesday. If there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, Believe the bird. We're usually living in the field guidebook. So I'm very grateful for that. And again, I, I, I would not be in this seat if it wasn't for these different teachers. I, don't, I really don't see anything original. Whenever I, you know, there's a, something that comes through, of course we're we're all unique individual expressions of life, but mostly what comes through is something related to something one of the teachers said to me. 
So let's just remember our teachers, whoever your teachers are, and honor your teachers. Realize that, that you don't exist independently apart from their influence. And so I just wanted to say that first. And I guess with all of that, listening to the arc of my own appreciation of my teachers, it's just a reminder, I, I was listening to the announcement about the, the survival, resistance, and resiliency practice of, uh, for men of color that um, happening in the East Bay on Monday, that I was really struck by the word resiliency. And if you're human, period, you have to develop some kind of resiliency, some ability to sit in the middle of life and to be well in spite of all the conditions. I used to say, I used to say, I, you know, I think I've lost my confidence that there can be peace in the world. The, my, my Pollyannish view of reality has ended, but I have more confidence than ever that it's possible to be at peace with the world. That I can, and what, I don't mean that just being some kind of benign, too, checked out, tuned out, but actually be resilient, sit in the middle of it, not have to not have to hide away in fear and dullness, not have to check out, not have to keep feeding some kind of addiction to handle it, that I can actually, I can find a resiliency. And to me, the path of practice gives that kind of resiliency. It allows us, we can train our minds to be present. We can train our minds to be still. We can train our bodies to be calm. We can train our attention to be wide, as wide as the sky, to, be, to feel that ground. One of my teachers used to say, true groundedness is spaciousness. To be able to have a big enough heart, mind, to accommodate the joys and the sorrows. How does that happen? One, it's your natural state, but we don't, it does, we don't recognize it unless we train ourselves in remembering it and getting used to it. And that's why we practice. We practice first, putting our mind and body together, Create, coming to that point, that still point, that point called ekagata, that point that includes everything. And we've just, from that single pointedness, we just keep flowing down and wider and wider, steady, mountain-like, spacious, impartial. We develop that again and again, and then pay attention, moment by moment, to each arising experience. And then through that process, we see, it's not rocket science, we see everything that arises passes away. Everything in our life is in a constant state of flux. Everything that is in a constant state of flux cannot, is not permanent, it cannot give us lasting satisfaction. We must find we must learn to be in harmony with change and impermanence. Sickness, old age, death, the passing, the fleeting nature of everything. We may have to be in, if we're not in harmony with that, reacting to it, hiding from it, misery, in harmony with it, we find peace. And if we stay long enough in this 
presentness, aware of being aware. We can, we can actually wake up to the fact that, that within our hearts is a capacity for a great sense of freedom, unshakability, resiliency, equanimity, balance, and a, a great heart that's available to, to care for whoever needs to be cared for, and to give freely without the feeling of lack, to be generous, to be more patient because we, we don't have to, we're not waiting to get where we want to go, we're already here. Impatience comes from thinking that some other place would, will, getting somewhere will be, and getting there fast is somehow the source of relief. So if, if I've learned anything from these teachers, one, train your heart and mind to stay here. You are the guru, the real guru is you. So honor your innermost guru, honor your outer gurus, turn everyone who you meet into your guru. People who have to live with you every day, they're your gurus. They're your mirrors. Every person of every shade and color, size, ability, they're all our gurus. Wake up. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for your practice. Thanks for your generosity. And as we always do, besides the appreciation of our teachers and our teachers' teachers, appreciation of the Buddha. We wouldn't be here without the Buddha. Excellent refuge. Beside that, as we do each week, we gather any of the blessings of our time together, any of the goodness, any of the merit, any fruits of our practice, and we offer them freely to, to this whole world and everyone in this world, including yourself, with a deep wish that all beings can know happiness, peace, and the causes of happiness and peace that all beings can feel safe in this world from inner and outer harm, that all beings can feel health and strength, well-being, and that all beings can recognize the, this sacred happiness that's sorrowless, here and now, and not postpone this for one moment. And a deep wish that our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. And may all of us commit to practicing non-harming as part of our blessing, not stealing, not killing, not exploiting with our sexuality, not causing harm with our speech, and not causing harm with the excessive use of intoxicants. May all beings live with pure hearts and pure actions, pure minds. Oh, one announcement.
next week. Oh, I have one more book left in this pile if anyone wants a book. And also next week, I will not be here, but you will be visited by the guest teacher will be John Martin, who just completed his teacher training at the, the Spirit Rock teacher training. He has also just completed, he may not tell you this, but I will. He just completed his work of being the head of San Francisco International Airport for the last 10 or 15 years. He's just stopped being the head of the airport and he will come and share the Dharma with you. He also leads an LGBT group and teaches around and he's a great character. You would, he's very, it's great humility, great intelligence, and I think you will all really enjoy sitting with John Martin next week. So put, come one, come all, and be generous. Support him, and thank you all for your practice. I'll be back the following eight weeks after that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.